Welcome to the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubs. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Season 3 of the Dr. Bubs Performance Podcast, where, as always, you will find evidence-based insights from world-leading experts to inform your practice. Well, the UK Strength and Conditioning Association Conference just wrapped up this past weekend outside London in the UK. And I'm excited today to be talking with the current chairman of the board of directors for the UK Strength and Conditioning Association. He is also a senior lecturer in strength and conditioning at the London Sport Institute, as well as the program leader for the Masters in Strength and Conditioning at Middlesex University London, Mr. Chris Bishop is on the show. In this episode, Chris shares his research and insights into asymmetries in athletes. He'll start by defining asymmetries and then discuss the current methods used to assess athlete asymmetries. Chris discusses if there is a threshold above which asymmetries become problematic, what methods can be used to correct or limit asymmetries in athletes, and when do you really need to address an asymmetry? He'll also talk about return to play and how asymmetries impact injured athletes, the future of research in this area, as well as some of his big take-home points on the topic here today. As usual, you can find the links and the podcast summary in the show notes at drbubs.com forward slash podcast. If you're interested in more on this topic, then please check out season two, episode number 16 with Mr. Jordan Webb from the University of Notre Dame on analytics, monitoring, and the 24-hour athlete. You can also check out Season 2, Episode 25, with Dr. Ramsey Nijem, Head Strength and Conditioning Coach of the NBA's Sacramento Kings, on workload monitoring and player development in the NBA. All right, this episode is sponsored by my new book, Peak the new science of athletic performance that is revolutionizing sports. Happy to say we recently hit number one new release on Amazon in the U.S. and number one bestseller in sport medicine and sport training here in Canada. So massive thank you to all the listeners for your support. If you'd like more information or expert insights on the book, you can check out athleteevolution.org. That's athleteevolution.org. Terrific. This episode is also sponsored by our good friends at Totem Sport. Totem Sport is the world's only 100% natural supplement. Totem Sport is the only sport drink supplement that contains all 78 naturally occurring minerals and trace elements. The research on ocean mineral water is ramping up. A recent study highlighting its major promise as the optimal rehydrating strategy over spring water and other sports drinks. Totem Sport is the evolution of hydration, the world's only 100% natural sport drink tested and approved by Informed Sport and Informed Choice. You can use the promo code BUBS10, B-U-B-B-S-10, at checkout and save 10% at totemsport.com and defy the norm. All right, let's do this season three, episode 22. Enjoy. Chris, really appreciate you carving out some time today. Mark, thanks very much for having me. Yeah, really excited to be on. 
Terrific. Well, you're the program leader for the uh, Masters in Strength and Conditioning at Middlesex University. You are the chairman of the UK Strength and Conditioning Association. Can you tell listeners a little more about yourself, perhaps a little whirlwind tour of your background and your journey into these roles? Yeah, of course. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I think a lot of people's journeys, uh, you know, often start with sort of what they did at undergraduate level. But uh, I actually studied geography. Uh, undergrad. Um, yeah, yeah, nothing to do with sport, but um, you know, it always like many of us in the in the industry, you know, it always you know enjoyed sport, playing sport, watching sport, all that kind of stuff growing up. Um, and then when I, I finished my undergrad degree, I was I was quite keen to still have some you know level of involvement in fitness, sport, physical activity, that kind of thing. So I I, I kind of left university and got into personal training to begin with. Um, and then after a few years, I got my first taste of strength and conditioning, um, as a, a hired performance consultant for a, a league one football club. Nice. And that was for, uh, for a couple of years. And I, and actually that kind of really sort of, you know, having not really had a much of a taste of or experience, even at the sub elite level to go straight into professional football was, uh, was quite, you know, sh- it was very eye-opening and uh, gave me some experiences that uh, have really kind of, you know, moulded my outlook still today, actually. Um, and after a, a couple of years in football, uh, I kind of realised that actually that was very much the, the avenue I wanted to go down. Um, so uh, I ended up becoming sort of uh, the lead S&C coach for a private um, healthcare company that sort of most of its work was in uh, physiotherapy, but it also had a performance side of the business. So if you mm-hmm. kind of think of, uh, I guess, almost Exos, but about a thousandth of the size. <laughs> um, and so it was, it was kind of following that similar model, really. Um, and so I did that for a few years. And then uh, whilst I was in that role, I kind of went and did my master's degree in strength and conditioning. Actually, sorry, before that, I did my UKSEA accreditation in 2010, and then went on to do my master's degree at the back end of uh, 2010 or 2011. Um, and uh, really, um, I-, I went and did my master's degree with one of the primary intentions of trying to get into lecturing, actually. And uh, Terrific. yeah, the guy is quite, quite a, a sort of interesting story that the guy who ran the program then, Anthony Turner, who I work with quite closely now, he, um, he doesn't remember this, but he used to run interviews to get on the, the master's degree and he was asking me why I wanted to do it. And I kind of pitched back at him with a question. I said, oh, well, how many people do these master's degrees and try and get into teaching? And he was like, oh, uh, you know, he was a bit sort of taken <laughs> back to the question because normally people do a master's degree. Uh, well, they do it for different reasons, but I guess one of the most common reasons would be that, you know, they want to get in and coach sort of high-level athletes or elite-level sure. athletes some degree. Um, so I did that and then um, managed to get myself sort of some some part-time lecturing hours for a couple of years at Middlesex before um, before then a full-time post came up and I was, you know, applied and fortunate enough to get that in 2014. Um, and then I, uh, for a couple of years, I took over the master's degree in 2016 from Anthony and Anthony still works there, uh, you know, very closely with me and the other guys. He's 
director of postgraduate programs in sports. Um, and I've taken over his role of just running that uh, MSc in strength and conditioning. And then a couple of years ago, um, I, I put my application in to get onto the board of directors for the UKSCA. And really, um, my, my, my kind of my focus was very much driven by putting my eggs all in one basket at that time, which was in 2017, I didn't see any representation from uh, HE, from universities on the board mm -hmm. at that time. And there's a lot of, you know, degree programs in strength and conditioning now in the UK. And it was my feeling at the time that uh, HE should at least have some representation on the board. Definitely. And it had done in the past. It just at that particular moment, it didn't. So that was my, uh, you know, my rationale. And um, I was fortunate enough to get voted on. So thank you very much to the members <laughs> for me then. Um, I'm actually up for re-election in about a week's time. So uh, Pressure's uh, on. Yeah, exactly. Pressure's on. Fingers crossed. Um, so that's kind of, uh, I guess, my, my journey to date, really. Amazing. Well, listen, I'm looking forward to diving into some of the work that you've done in uh, asymmetries. And of course, injury rates appear to be on the rise in almost every sport. Um, you know, athletes and teams always looking for different monitoring tools to help limit the risk of injury and of course, yeah. improve performance as well. And, you know, as I mentioned, obviously, the study of asymmetries is one of those areas, one of your areas. So perhaps you could kick off the conversation here today by defining asymmetries and then you know, discussing some of those different methods that might be used to assess asymmetry. Yeah, sure. So, um, again, it's quite, a, it's quite an interesting one because um, there's been a lot of uh, publications, you know, peer-reviewed publications on the topic of asymmetry in, in different, you know, kind of areas such as uh, injury, return to play, and, you know, some associated with performance or athletic performance more recently – um, but despite the volume of studies and literature out there, there probably isn't actually any, I guess, uniform or you know universally accepted definition. But uh, there's a guy called uh, Key, an author called Keeley from a few years ago. I think it was 2011 um, that just suggests that uh, if you're trying to look at an imbalance between left and right or dominant and non-dominant. It's just the the difference in performance or function of one limb relative to the other, mm -hmm. which I think is a, a very nice and very, very simple definition because, you know, the, the more rabbit holes I go down on this topic, the, the more evident to me it becomes actually it's not particularly well understood as a topic. So I think it's in our interest to keep everything nice and simple and digestible Definitely. Uh, on the topic. So... Uh, I think it's also really important to make the distinction that um, you can have a within the same limb asymmetry. Okay, so intralimb asymmetry would be if you were looking at quadricep versus hamstrings or agonist versus antagonist. But all the work that we've been doing um, has been focusing on between limb asymmetry, so that interlimb imbalance as it were. And that's a kind of important just to make that, I guess, distinction from the outset that you can have both. Yep. Uh, and sometimes, you know, terms are used interchangeably in the literature. Um, so it's just important to have that, that uh, sort of differentiation from the beginning. With regards, I guess, to some of the test methods that are used to assess those imbalances, uh, detect that they exist. I mean, 
you know, depending on what your budget is for equipment, there's been almost every possible permutation yeah, of balance sure. sets. I guess if we stay stay true to, I guess, crudely put, what I would consider to be fundamental strength and conditioning principles, if we talk about strength and power or strength and jumping-based tasks as means of detecting imbalances, for strength, uh, some guys have tried to detect differences between limbs in vertical ground reaction force during the back squat if they had twin force plates mm -hmm. um naturally and probably unsurprisingly one really common method is isokinetic dynamometry such as on something like a biodex and looking at quadricep differences or hamstring indifferences and of course the beauty of that is you can build up an asymmetry picture between limbs at, at different speeds and obviously with different muscle actions. So you can look at your, you know, your eccentric, concentric, uh, sort of higher force uh, velocities at 30 and 60 degrees per second. And then more of a velocity focus at kind of sort of 180 to 40 degrees per second. Interesting. So that's, I think you can be super thorough that way. Um, I guess the other methods which are gaining a little bit of traction and, and sorry, they're gaining traction from asymmetry rather than gaining traction for strength diagnostics because they've been there for years is using um, methods like the isometric mid-thigh pull uh, and the isometric squat, both bilaterally and unilaterally to detect differences. Um, and again, similar, I guess, to isokinetic dynamometry, the beauty of that is that if you have your single or twin force plate system, you don't just get to look at peak force anymore. You can look at force at different time points and how that differs between limbs. Assuming the metrics are reliable, potentially look at impulse and rate of force development at different epochs and how that differs between limbs. Um, we've done a little bit of research on that, as well as some of the guys up in uh, Salford University in Manchester here in the UK. And that the message is, is typically the same now, which is if you're looking to assess for imbalances, which are quite variable anyway, um, RFD and impulse tend to be metrics that are arguably slightly too noisy, especially okay. when tested for unilaterally. So often peak force, uh, if you want to look at imbalances, is probably one of the only sort of really realistic or usable metrics um and then i guess for jumping there's been i mean there's been so many studies that have tried to quantify imbalances from different jump based tests such as counter movement jumps drop jumps and their you know associated unilateral versions mm -hmm. and then sort of different hop tests have been quite commonly used in injury based literature such as the single leg hop triple hop crossover hop that sort of thing um what i would say is on the on the jumping based tests because they're quite, you know, they're more, uh, practical friendly for coaches out there with sort of less, uh, less budgets, if you like, that the majority of literature tends to be at the moment more focused around outcome based measures. So reporting asymmetries in jump height or, you know, jump height and RSI or just distance, if that makes sense, relative, depending on what tests we're talking about. Um, for sure. So, uh, and I think that's, you know, that's commendable and, and that's useful, uh, particularly if that's all you've got. Um, and, and we've been responsible for some of those studies as well. So I'm not criticizing, I guess it's, there is um, a requirement for sort of a 
uh, more consistent information, I guess, on asymmetries using sort of different metrics and force plate diagnostics, probably. And Chris, what is the you know current evidence base look like when we're comparing the relationship between these asymmetries and and different sports specific performances? Yeah, so um, I mean, we were we were fortunate enough to uh, have a systematic review, actually, exactly on the question that you're asking, published last summer. Um, it was actually accepted in 2017, and and the landscape's actually moved on in those last couple of years. And I, I've tried to stay on top of that as best I can. So, um, it, if we look at studies that have tried to quantify asymmetry during strength-based tasks and then correspond that asymmetry index to some kind of measure of athletic performance. I think there's been about seven studies that have done that and six out of those seven show you that, or some evidence anyway, that the larger the imbalance, um, the greater the association with reduced athletic performance. Now that athletic performance could simply be within a jump task. It could be a speed or a change of direction, speed test, something like that. Mm -hmm. For jumping-based tests, I think there's about nine studies now that have specifically, again, not only tried to measure asymmetry, but then corresponded that asymmetry index to athletic performance. I think six out of nine show that asymmetry is associated with reduced performance of some kind, whilst three show nothing. Um, uh, interestingly, I, and I haven't kept as close an eye on this next category, there's a sports-specific category as well, which um, basically says, as an example, um, if you take a cyclist, they've tried to measure um, the asymmetry or the imbalance during something like, you know, revolutions per minute or angular velocity whilst the athlete is cycling and then corresponded that imbalance to whether or not the time trial is slower or faster. Mm-hmm. And that, that's been done in cycling and they've done some sport specific asymmetry testing in swimming and foot, a sport called futsal. And six out of eight studies again show that, um, you know, if you're imbalanced during the sport specific task, you then do the sport specific task worse. Okay. Uh, but actually, one study in cycling, interestingly, showed that the larger the imbalance, the faster you did your time trial. So that was, <laughs> was a really interesting study. And then there's a few random ones uh, as well in sort of dynamic balance, uh, anthropometry and sprinting. Um, and you, we kind of clustered them together because uh, there sort of wasn't enough information for them to create their own section. But what I would say actually is um, you put all them together. I think there's about five or six studies and it's an even split. Three show that there is an association with reduced athletic performance, but three show that there aren't. And the three that show nothing are all in sprinting, which is really useful and interesting. So it doesn't matter whether um, you have an asymmetry in stride frequency, stride length, or ground contact time, that, that doesn't seem to slow you down, which is really useful to know, right? And, uh, you know, there's been some, there's been some sort of information and, and hype on social media about you know Usain Bolt's asymmetry over the years and it certainly didn't affect him so. yeah I was gonna say like is there a I mean that's obviously good to know is there a point at which you know the asymmetry becomes so large that it would become something to be concerned of or is, is does Usain Bolt's case just uh rest the case there 
Yeah, I, I suspect it probably depends on the task, but I don't know. I mean, if I've understood your question correctly, you're kind of asking whether there's a, whether there's a threshold. Yeah, you know, it's fine to be asymmetrical, but at some point you'd think that something would be detrimental, but... Yeah, intuitively, you definitely think that. I I think it's almost an impossible question to answer properly, which I appreciate is is not the answer you want for a podcast, by the way. Oh, that's Uh, fine. (laughs) Get the discussion uh, going. Yeah, it's so thresholds within their own right, uh, in our opinion on asymmetry, are incredibly flawed concepts. They've been used historically to try and suggest that, you know, anything greater than a 15% imbalance means you're more susceptible to injury. Mm -hmm. But you know, we've got plenty of evidence having done some of this testing, uh, as an example, on force plates to get multiple metrics. Well, you know, like we have healthy athletes with jump height asymmetry of 10%. If you take the group mean value, peak force asymmetry of 5% and eccentric impulse asymmetry of 14%. So actually asymmetry is really task specific. It's also metric specific within the same test. So it's impossible to know, you know, if a threshold um, has any association to, you know, injury risk, as an example, because you get different asymmetry values for different metrics all within the same test. Um, And actually, some of the the more dated literature has even tried to suggest, uh, which is a bit mind boggling to me, really, that, um, you know, 15 percent is you're at an increased risk of injury, but that 15% has been suggested because that was the the norm of a healthy population that they tested in that study. Okay. So they weren't even testing the asymmetry of the injured athlete. They were saying, well, the norm for healthy people is 15%. Therefore, because that's the you know, the significant difference or the differentiating factor when we compare it to these injured lot, that must mean you're at higher risk, which is just crazy. Yeah, that is uh, fascinating. And and Chris, what about sports that you would just assume that asymmetries would crop up and eventually lead to some type of uh, increased risk of injury? Things like, you know, golf or tennis seem to be, you know, yeah, classic yeah. examples of where you would think this would really crop up. What, what does the research tell us there? Yeah, absolutely. Great question. So, um, I, in a sport like golf, uh, Jack Wells has just uh, done a nice study on um, – he looked at asymmetry during uh, the counter-movement jump, the drop jump, and the isometric mid-thigh pull. And then he looked at corresponding that to club head velocity, which is one of the, you know a key performance indicator in golf because improved club head velocity, all things being equal, will improve things like driving distance. Mm-hmm. Um, and things like that. And he again found that there was no association between asymmetry and club head velocity. So it didn't matter whether or not your asymmetry was big or small. It didn't really have an effect. And that's probably, you know, in a sport like golf, you probably need quite a high level of functional asymmetry to, to do the golf swing well, because you never swing the golf. You never swing it in the other direction, right? Yeah, a few times in warm up, and that's about it, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, and there's a really nice study as well by a guy called Gray in uh, that used elite fast bowling cricketers, and um, there's a slightly different kind of measure of asymmetry. They looked at um, QL, so you know, in the uh, abdominal muscle or the, the back muscle QL. They looked at QL muscle thickness in fast bowlers um, and corresponded it to 
injury incidents of lower back pain. And what they found was that if you run a training intervention to try and correct uh, the muscle imbalance between left and right side QLs, you actually made back pain worse, which was really interesting, right? So again, yeah. you really need some level of functional asymmetry in some instances, um, definitely, in order to function. And for sports like, as you say, golf, tennis, cricket, and even football, where you know, you've got positional differences and you have to react to opponents in a different manner from game to game, you're almost expecting asymmetry to develop in these sports. I guess the, the, the key question really is, um, are these associated with reduced measures of athletic performance? And if they are, is that consistent over time? And I think the, the time factor is really important here because what we've noticed in a lot of our research is that asymmetry is an incredibly variable concept, um, really, really variable, actually, and more so than you know any other type of metric or outcome measure we've ever looked at. And as an example, you could have 25 football players and you could measure jump height asymmetry from a single leg counter movement jump. And the let's say the the group mean asymmetry value is 10%, it wouldn't be uncommon for the standard deviation to be 10%. So 100% of the mean, which is crazy. Wow. You know, you can, we're talking, and again, I, I haven't looked at this from a performance measure, but if we took jump height on the left and right limbs that we got that asymmetry value from, and they jumped, I'm just going to make numbers up now, you know, like, 25 centimeters on average, you know, and 23 centimeters on the other leg, it's not going to be uncommon for you to see a standard deviation of, I don't know, five, five, five centimeters, something like that, four or five centimeters. So we're talking about a standard deviation on a performance metric of 20%, but on asymmetry, your standard deviation is somewhere between 60 and 100%. And that's that's crazy, right? So absolutely, that's the, yeah. It tells you that there's a, a great deal of sort of within group or within participant variability, and if there's a great deal of within group or within participant variability, then single time point snapshot studies, which by the way we've done plenty of, we're guilty of this. They're they're not that useful, actually. You know, it's a, it becomes actually one of the most important things we need to look at is what happens to asymmetry over time. And I think you touched on it in the introduction, which is part of uh, my PhD is, is trying to decipher for something so variable, can it actually be included as part of the ongoing monitoring process or is it too variable? And that's some stuff that we're looking at. Yeah. I was going to say on the, you know, on the practical side of things, the discussion on asymmetry is obviously a lot of coaches, strength coaches have been, attempting to mitigate asymmetries for some time now with a variety of different training techniques. And so I suppose the question becomes, you know, at what point is there a need to even do anything in terms of regulating or correcting some of these asymmetries based on what you've, you've just said there? Yeah. I mean, great question. And, and I don't fully have the answer, but I have some hunches. At yeah. This give us some hunches. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, we, you know, we ran, th we've got three longitudinal studies uh, as part of my PhD out of the four studies we've done. Um, and 
if I go back to that group mean value, just to set the scene for a little bit, mm-hmm. what we found actually in uh, elite academy football players is that it doesn't matter what the metric is on the single leg counter movement jump or the single leg drop jump. Those are a couple of the tests that we did to measure asymmetry. Um, it could be jump height, it could be peak force, or on the drop jump, it could be jump height, it could be RSI. The group mean value of asymmetry uh, is actually quite consistent. And that's, you know, uh, we kind of started to had to go down this little rabbit hole because we were like, hang on a minute, we know this is a really variable concept, but as an example, jump height in preseason was 11%, and then at mid-season it was 9%, and then at the end of season it was 9% again. So actually, throughout the stage of an entire season, there's only been a 2% shift. Mm-hmm. And we were like, and that was the same for every metric, pretty much. We were like, that's, that's you know, what's going on here? Because um, we know this is really variable. So what we started looking at is um, limb dominance consistency or the direction of asymmetry, which basically means if if I jump... 25 centimeters on my left leg and then 20 centimeters on my right leg I have a 20% imbalance but that imbalance is favoring the left leg because it jumped higher does that make sense so that's talking about which leg jumped higher out of the two and that is we've we started to look at this direction of asymmetry quite a lot instead of just the magnitude and that's where the um that's where the variability comes from okay so you get as an example, your first athlete in your group has an asymmetry of 15%. The next athlete has an asymmetry of 2%. But then what we found is come mid-season, the first athlete went from 15% to 2%. And then the second athlete went from 2% to 15%. And Incredible. your participant, yeah, the within participant variability was crazy. So to answer your question, uh, when do we know when's the right time to do anything about it? For starters, because of that huge amount of variability, uh, we published a paper in 2018 which kind of said you just have to look at asymmetry on an individual basis. It's the group mean value. If it's showing consistency over time, which we've got evidence for um, on in two professional sports actually, uh, but we know that it's very, very variable you have to look at asymmetry individually. Otherwise, you're going to be missing a big piece of the story on what's going on with your athletes. Gotcha. I think another thing that you need to do, certainly in our opinion, particularly with healthy athletes who haven't been injured for a while, who've had consistency in their training over a long period of time, you also need to look at the direction of asymmetry, not just that percentage value as a positive value, because that's where all your sort of within group variability comes from. And if you're not looking at that directional dominance or limb dominance, then you're missing that variability. And the percentage value tells you a false story of what's going on. It tells you that it's pretty consistent over time if you just look at the group mean. But we know that's not true um, because each individual athlete is changing, you know, from preseason to mid-season. And all the way through, right? Post. Yeah, all the way through. So that's something that I think is really, really key on this long-term monitoring. So when do we do something about it? Well, um, I just wrote an invited paper for um, the Aspatar Sports Medicine Journal, and that's going to come out in the next couple of months. Uh, And what we potentially suggested is actually only if asymmetry is um, sort of over a certain amount 
and I know earlier I was, you know, saying how terrible thresholds were. Um, but if it's over a certain amount and asymmetry is consistently favoring the same limb, okay. i.e. in preseason, it was 15% favoring the right side. Come mid-season, it's 12% still favoring the right side. And at the end of season, it's 17% still on the right side. Now, that's an extreme example because, you know, the season's been and gone and it's now too late to do anything about it. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. But um, nice to I, know. But <laughs> yeah, I think if if limb dominance, you know, and, and asymmetry is staying on the same side, and it's you know a pretty notable difference uh, or a pretty sizable difference between limbs, then you'd probably try and do something about that. And the answer is, you know, when do we start correcting it? That probably depends on how frequently you test. You know, because if For you sure. only test three times a year, I'm probably not going to make a decision. Off between preseason and midseason because it's only two time points and they could both be anomalies. Mm-hmm. Equally, though, um, in which case, if all you do is test at three time points and then you test again at the end of the season, your argument then becomes if they're showing consistency of a certain magnitude, maybe you do some work in preseason to try and correct that imbalance. Um, but then you know you've not you've not done anything throughout the season and that's okay. Maybe they didn't need it. But I guess if you tested more frequently, you know, I, I don't know, every, uh, I don't know, two, four weeks, something like that, and they consistently show, you know, asymmetry on the same limb. Yeah, maybe then after you've had, you know, three, four time, te- three, four test measures, maybe you'd think about potentially incorporating an intervention. And, and maybe that intervention should then focus on the weaker limb. Um, and that's a feels like a logical and you know, useful thing to suggest because remember you're only running the intervention because the same limb is consistently scoring higher. So you're almost now treating the non-dominant limb or, or the weaker limb as like a window of opportunity to catch up. Okay. So it's like a capacity issue rather than, so maybe the asymmetry is not the problem. Maybe just the other leg needs to play catch up if that makes sense. But again, I'd only probably think about trying to run those training interventions if the asymmetry was of some level of magnitude and showing consistency over time. Hey, Chris, I mean, it seems like uh, obviously the classic scenario for most strength coaches would be to use unilateral movements to try to correct for an asymmetry like that. Is that really the the only or best way to do it? Yeah, um, (laughs) that's a great (laughs) question. There hasn't really been um, enough training interventions uh, to prove what's the best way of doing it. The answer is there's been some bilateral training interventions, there's been some unilateral training interventions, and there's been some comparisons between the two, but there aren't many. And what we take from the evidence so far is that both work, actually. Now, I, I guess uh, there was a really nice study by a guy called Basilier, I think came out of Mike Stone's group, Um in the States and they, they ran this seven week, uh, back squat training intervention, uh, on sort of college athletes and they divided them into strong and weak groups, depending on their, um, isometric peak force on an isometric mid thigh pull, if I remember rightly, or an isometric squat, one of the two. Um, and what they found was that the strong group had back squat of roughly two times body weight and the weak group 
had uh, one RM back squat of about 1.55 times body weight. And they run this seven-week training intervention, and they just do back squats. And, it, you know, it was a decent amount of volume. It was about six sets of three to five reps at loads of 85 to 92% one RM. And they just did it for seven weeks, twice a week. And the week group um, significantly reduced their asymmetry and obviously got stronger. And, you know, they were up sort of around closer to the 1.7 times body weight at the end of the training intervention, I believe. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the message here was, you know, that, asymmetry sort of probably starts to correct itself just with good quality consistent training because you you wouldn't intuitively think that doing a bilateral exercise would help to correct an imbalance but actually for me the number one rule of training or one of the priorities of training is consistency you know just turn up and do it consistently over time and actually your results if you've got consistency probably start to speak for themselves over time. So uh, I think just good quality training, sensible training, um, you know, underpinned by all the key principles that we know in strength and conditioning, one of the first things that we learned, will probably help to rectify imbalances over time. Now, some people will probably, you know, uh, benefit from the inclusion of unilateral training as well. And, and I, I guess the answer to that is you should go back to the needs analysis of the athlete. You know, if, if, sure. all, if all my athlete does is, you know, execute movement patterns on two legs, I probably don't need to include loads of unilateral based work. But for team sport athletes, like your cricketers, your tennis players, your football players, then, you know, they do a lot of their movements like, kicking cutting sprinting unilaterally i suspect that some inclusion of unilateral based exercises is is probably a smart thing and i I don't think that's any secret either i'm sure all practitioners are doing that but they probably both work both methods yeah it's i mean it's fascinating the uh, you know the findings there around the bilateral movements because that's definitely something i think intuitively most people maybe wouldn't think of on first glance but as you mentioned yeah it does it, it does make sense when you kind of really dig a little bit deeper. And on this whole discussion here on asymmetries and return to play, you know, you've touched on it a little bit here, but, you know, how can assessments of asymmetries inform return to play decisions for the performance staff? Yeah, it's, um, we sort of touched on this actually in my uh, invited paper in the Aspatar Sports Medicine Journal. So, um, uh, we were talking a lot about trying to understand the direction of asymmetry. Um, earlier, and that was for healthy athletes. And I'm not sure I did a good enough job of explaining that. Our rationale really is particularly different for healthy athletes. And I was saying that if they haven't been injured and they've had some consistency in their training over time, um, there's arguably less of a reason for the existence of the asymmetry. Whereas in an injured athlete, one side can't do anything because it's injured and that asymmetry or that imbalance is there for a reason right because one leg can't do anything Mm -hmm. so as an example take an acl you know that that injured side is out of action for a long period of time um so that imbalance that asymmetry that you get when it comes back to you know however long it is four five months after you've had your surgery once you go back to your first testing protocol that imbalance or that asymmetry value that you see it's there for a reason Um, so it makes sense to look at the magnitude of asymmetry in injured athletes for sure, because you know why that imbalance is there. Now, 
when we're returning to play, I guess, you know, one of the rules for physios and therapists and strength coaches is when we're returning to play, we're probably going to try and reduce, you know, those imbalances um, with a focus of getting that injured side healthy again and trying to play catch up. Now, it might not be a key priority to reduce the imbalance, but obviously strengthening that injured side will naturally increase its capacity and its performance. And so the asymmetry or imbalance should naturally reduce over time. Um, now, as you return to play, you know, one of the goals being that if we're trying to somewhat minimize or reduce those imbalances to get the athlete healthy again, this is where the monitoring the direction might come into play as well. So I understand looking at the magnitude for an injured athlete makes total sense, but assuming that all the physios and the support staff and the strength coaches have done a great job, like I'm sure they do, you know, trying to rectify those imbalances and get that injured limb healthy again, actually in some athletes and maybe not all, but in some athletes, maybe that injured side, you know, gets pretty close to matching the uninjured side if he's had a really healthy sort of return to play and rehabilitation period. For sure. In which case, actually, it is plausible, although the evidence says it's unlikely, it is plausible that actually that injured side then overtakes, uh, you know, the uninjured side mm. again. And so that now, if again, if you're not monitoring the direction of asymmetry, you know, y y you're missing the fact that your injured side has overtaken as it were so that's where i think that as we go into return to play we kind of have this almost this shift of looking solely at the magnitude of asymmetry that percentage value when the athlete's injured as they return to play we should probably keep an eye on them um the magnitude but also the direction and then assuming we can keep that athlete healthy we should probably then look at the direction of asymmetry and how consistent that is over time so we've almost got this <clears throat> this shift or this transition from just looking at a percentage value to also looking at the direction of asymmetry as well over time. Now, that hasn't been done a lot uh, in the injury literature as far as I'm aware, but that's probably because a lot of the literature out there tells us that, you know, athletes are going back to compete at sport and still have very large deficits. <laughs> you just got to get know? back out there, right? Yeah, that's right. There's obviously, uh, you know, particularly in a sport like football where players are probably to some degree, whether it's admitted or not seen as commodities, you know, they're assets because they get paid so much. So, you know, it's in the club's interest as it operates as a business to get their assets back out on the field. For sure. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of the time, particularly in strength testing, there's still very, very large deficits in these athletes when they go back and return to play. Uh, for me, um, I feel like the injury literature's had a real breakthrough in the last sort of couple of years because historically a lot of tests like those those hot tests I was talking about mm -hmm. were used to sort of as part of a return to play test battery. But again, they're only governed by or have only been used with the information of outcome measures, such as looking at distance and distance asymmetry, which I think is useful if you have nothing else, but a little bit limited, actually. Um, particularly when we consider that there's been a couple of recent articles showing that 
single leg hop for distance is actually a pretty limited measure of return to play and that actually we need to start looking at more in-depth metrics and that's been some really really uh it's been really good to see those papers come out in the injury-based literature recently you know showing that actually because we've known for some time in a performance setting that if an athlete's fatigued they can still achieve the same jump height just change their strategy to do it Mm -hmm. and actually now what they're saying for the injury-based literature is actually looking at single leg hop for distance, it can often overestimate an athlete's um, ability, you know, or rehabilitated status. There's a couple of really nice papers by Ender King and the guys out in the sports surgery clinic out in Dublin in Ireland, which have shown that. And they compare it to a couple of other tests. Some of these other tests have uh, more in-depth metrics to look at. Um, and they showed that actually, you know, depending on what metrics you're looking at, some deficits are still very, very large. And it would appear that some of these outcome measures based data like height and distance that we've been using for years, they're missing quite a big piece of the picture. So I guess how can we use asymmetry um, within the context of return to play? It, it probably, it's probably two factors really. Number one, it's knowing that some of the historical literature we've used is a little bit uh, sort of out of date and has its limitations, like these outcome measures. Yeah. But at the same time, it's understanding that actually if that's the most relevant metric to monitor for my athletes, depending on the sport or the activity, you know, let's we should also not get too bogged down in um, monitoring asymmetry for the sake of monitoring asymmetry. We need to make sure that the needs analysis of the athlete remains a key priority. That's uh, that's really fascinating. And, and Chris, is there any room in there for you know where's the subjective opinion of the athlete and even that return to play or that asymmetry side of things? Is there you know an aspect of that as well, or has it really come down to uh, you know the performance staff being able to assess some of these things? Yeah, I, I think that is very key. Um, it is uh, how that feeds into. Uh, asymmetry specifically uh, I'm not entirely sure we haven't particularly looked at that but um, I do fully appreciate and definitely value uh, the input of the athlete you know I think all you have to kind of do is look at uh, Robin Thorpe some of Robin Thorpe's research who was head of recovery and regeneration at Manchester United and you know I, I think some of the things that when he first joined Manchester United, he's, I heard him say in a couple of presentations, you know, when he first joined them as a PhD student, I think uh, the manager at Manchester United, you know, was, was trying to understand more about what these guys could offer as yeah. support staff. And he just said, just get my players, just get my players the most ready they can be every Saturday. You know, he said, uh, how do you make sure that my players are ready and raring to go? So they were looking at, you know monitoring and trying to assess neuromuscular fatigue and they had so many different tests and you know they had something crazy like a hundred different metrics from force you know force decks force plate jumps and things like that um and i remember in one of robin's presentations he said that actually the most useful thing we found with the players was asking them how they felt out of 10 <laughs> you know nice so I think the subjective stuff uh, is really, really important. Um, I, I, I really enjoy 
collecting and analyzing data, but I'm not one of those people that thinks that it's the only thing out there. I think probably, you know, communication with your athlete uh, arguably takes priority over all of it for sure. Terrific, Chris. And in this line of research here, if we talk about the evolution of this line of research in the next five or 10 years, you know, where are things headed in terms of, you know, asymmetries and performance, injury risk, return to play? Yeah, so um, from performance perspective, um, if I can, just to give you a little bit more of an insight, I guess, into some of the stuff we've done on my PhD, well, one of these studies uh, we've just submitted to a journal, um, and we had this directions for future research section in, my, in our systematic review. Um, and I guess there was about two or three, there was about four things actually that came out of that. Uh, and we're trying to address sort of a couple of them in quite a lot of depth in my PhD. The first one is there's no longer, surprisingly, and, and still now, there's no longitudinal data for asymmetry in healthy athlete populations. So when you see these single time point studies showing that there's you know, larger asymmetries are associated with slower speed or change of direction speed. And we've done some of them. What we need to know is, is that repeatable over time? Okay. Mm -hmm. So, um, I think another thing that we're trying to look at is, um, can asymmetry be used as part of the ongoing monitoring process? Okay. So what we've done is we went into an under 18 football club this season, uh, in the championship and we collected single leg counter movement jump and single leg drop jump data, uh, before a match about two hours before a match and then 10 minutes after a match. And then we did that uh, repeated measures design. We did it for five matches. And, um, what we were looking at was how does asymmetry change after a game? So we're only looking at yeah, we're only looking at outfield players who played at least 60 minutes of a match. So we weren't including the goalkeeper in this. Um, and we were trying to look at sort of the, the response of different metrics, okay, in each game. Um, and the other thing we were trying to do was, you know, look at the correlations between post-match asymmetry and the change in asymmetry from pre-game to post-game and how that corresponded with um, GPS data. So the club gave us all the GPS data for each game as well. So we were able Perfect. to, yeah, it was really, really good. And, you know, we've, we've been very lucky with that. And um, this probably gives us a, a bit more of a detailed insight as to whether or not asymmetry always follows the same pattern and whether or not sort of post-match asymmetry or changes in asymmetry, um, does that then correspond to what's happening in the game by looking at metrics such as distance, explosive distance, high-speed running, player load, etc. So that's something that hopefully gives a little bit of insight, um, hoping to submit that to a journal soon, gives a little bit of insight as to, um, you know, is this metric usable and can what happens after a game be explained sorry can what happens to asymmetry after a game be explained by what happens in the game that's fantastic yeah really fascinating fascinating stuff here chris i definitely want to respect your time so last question for you you know for yourself in terms of your research in the next uh, you know in the upcoming years you know what are some things that uh, 
you know, pique your interest or that you'll be diving into? Um, yeah, nice. I guess the, the other areas are the, probably the other two points um, in that directions of future research that um, we're probably not looking at so much in my PhD. But I think whoever the next student, if someone wants to look at it um, in the future, should do, which is we probably need to understand more about asymmetry mechanistically. You know, like why specifically, why is it occurring rather mm. than just looking at whether it's occurring and whether it's consistent, we'd probably need to have a better understanding of why it's there. You know, is it there because, um, you know, what is it that's driving that asymmetry to be present? Is it, which will of course change depending on the test. But, you know, if you have a single leg counter movement jump, which is in comparison to like a hop test, um, it's quite a knee dominant base movement for the most part, you know, so is that yeah. imbalance being driven by, I don't know, poor neuromuscular control, weakness in the hips or the glutes, uh, you know, like a deficit in ankle range of motion on one side. I think if we can understand mechanistically a little bit more, um, that would be really, really useful. And of course, depending on the underpinning mechanisms for why that asymmetry is there, that might help us to understand whether or not, you know, a, a real or targeted training intervention is needed. Um, and then I guess the second area is probably looking at more training interventions, really. There aren't enough out there. And um, I've been very fortunate to get myself um, in a sort of working with a, a group out in Spain led by a guy called Oliver Gonzalo Scott. And he runs some fantastic sort of six, eight, 10 week training interventions um, and then assesses the change in performance, but also what happens to asymmetry as well, uh, based off some of the dependent variables that he selects. Um, and, and I think we could definitely do with more training interventions to try and determine whether changes in asymmetry are real and whether or not those true changes in asymmetry actually correspond to true changes in performance. And only then will we start to have a better understanding um, as to whether or not reduction of asymmetry is really something that we should be looking at awesome well, we'll definitely stay tuned uh for some <laughs> insights on that so that's terrific listen appreciate you uh carving out some time here chris you know folks are interested where can they keep up with you and all your terrific research uh yes yeah, so uh can find me on uh research gates uh as well uh i have a, a project on there that we've set up on research gate specific uh to this topic and then uh you know, when we're lucky enough to get some of our work published, tend to put that stuff out on uh, Twitter for the most part. So they can find me uh, at Chris Bishop underscore UK if they want to. Fantastic. Appreciate you taking the time today, Chris. Thanks very much, Mark. Appreciate it. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Bose Performance Podcast. If you enjoy the content, please consider subscribing on iTunes, YouTube, or your favorite podcasting platform show your support and it's also a tremendous help to the show and helps us to continue to attract high quality guests if you haven't heard my new book peak the new science of athletic performance that is revolutionizing sports is out and i'm pleased to announce we actually hit the amazon bestseller list in canada and in the u.s in the sports medicine physical medicine and rehab and holistic medicine categories so you can find out more info on that and the expert insights 
pataliteevolution.org. That's pataliteevolution.org. And of course, you can pick up a copy on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Chapters Indigo, Waterstones, or your local booksellers. Awesome. If you have any questions or want to leave a comment on today's episode, you can reach out on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Dr. Bubs. And thanks again, folks, for listening, and we'll see you all next week with more expert insights. The Dr. Bubs Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bubs Performance Podcasts.